Hello and welcome to Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. My name is Piotr Skokas and today I'm joined by Matthew Smith and Guy Finn to discuss the Kingdom of Jordan. We cover the conflicts of identity between the East and West Bankers, the severe economic issues the country faces, and how these trends have led to a widely publicized rift in the historically stable royal family. The Hashemite kingdom has long been viewed as a reliable partner at a crossroads in the Middle East, but its economy is struggling. This year, unemployment jumped to 25%. Exports and tourism are down. Syrian refugees tax an overburdened system. Prince Hamza is a popular figure, and certainly amongst a certain group, particularly East Bank tribal community. He's indicating a rift that society has been talking about. You remember, the late King Hussein the father was very popular among the people because Jordan was economically stable. I wanted to make this recording so that it is clear to the world that what you see and hear in terms of the official line is not a reflection of the realities on the ground. Unfortunately, this country has become stymied in corruption, in nepotism, and in misrule. Hello everyone, welcome to this episode on the recent developments in Jordan. Guy is going to be looking at the role of the Palestinians, Matthew is going to be looking at the role of the tribes, and I'll be discussing the economic issues and the foreign intervention and aid which Jordan has seen the last few years. But to understand all these issues, I thought we should start with the background. So Guy, could you talk a bit about the role of the Palestinians in in Jordan, please? Of course, Jordan and Israel-Palestine used to be the same administrative place under the British. And then when the state of Israel was created and you had Palestinian refugees coming out from Israel-Palestine, uh, a lot of them ended up in the west, in the east bank of the River Jordan, which is Jordan, and which had been created as Jordan by the British and given to the Hashemites. So today we don't really know the exact numbers of Palestinians in Jordan, but it's estimated there are about 5 million, probably more, which is about half the population. 18% of them live in refugee camps, and the rest live uh, in cities and the countryside. There has been conflict between the Palestinians and the Jordanian government in the past, but due to their shared history and similar culture, they're pretty homogenous in terms of religion. Jordanians and Palestinians get on pretty well. And of course, they've mixed quite a lot in the previous decades. A lot of them have different status because of various historical circumstances. So I suppose the least fortunate ones at the moment would be the Palestinian refugees from Syria who aren't given the same citizenship rights. Most of the Palestinians in Jordan, which is unlike other Middle Eastern states, most of the Palestinians do have citizenship rights and they do have rights from the states. They would be considered Jordanian outside of Jordan, but not all of them have citizenship. And amongst those people who don't have citizenship, you have firstly the ones who I mentioned, the Palestinians from Syria. And that's, I think, because Jordan didn't want to encourage Bashar al-Assad to kick out the Palestinians who are mostly supporting the rebels against the Syrian regime. So they were worried that you'd have the same situation as you have in Israel-Palestine, which is where if Jordan says, we'll take you all in, then the regime in the country feels free to ethnically cleanse the Palestinians and push them into Jordan as an alternative home, which is why there's this big fear about Jordan being thought of as an alternative Palestine or an alternative home for the Palestinians. Um, another group that are not treated so well are the Gazans. They, similar situation, they don't have the same citizenship rights. West Bank and Jordan were both under the Jordanian regime after 1948, when Jordan annexed it. Up until 1988, 
when the king severed all administrative and all administrative ties at the height of the First Intifada. During that time, West Bank and Jordan were sort of considered, he was trying to push them into being the same place, one country. It wasn't the same case for Gaza, and the Gazans never really got the same citizenship rights. In the West Bank as well, you'll have different forms of levels of citizenship. You can have a green card and a yellow card, depending on whether you're a West Bank citizen living in the West Bank or whether you're originally from the West Bank and now living in Jordan. Unfortunately, because of the Israeli occupation, it means that uh, if the Israelis don't, if the Israelis fail to renew the residency status of the Palestinians in the West Bank, then they might also lose their Jordanian nationality. So there's lots of different layers to the uh, citizenships and rights statuses of the Palestinians in Jordan. Thank you very much. In Jordan, you have both the West Bankers, who are basically the Palestinians, but you also have the East Bankers, and they are, for lack of a better word, the original Jordanians. So Matthew, would you like to say a bit about them, please? Sure. So yeah, like you said, the East Bankers are the ones who consider themselves uh, the indigenous inhabitants of Jordan. They're the tribes that were there, obviously, before the waves of Palestinian refugees and before even Amir Abdullah I and the Great Arab Revolt. So these tribes do have a historic place in the modern state of Jordan. Um, they've consistently served loyally as both statesmen, either in the Jordanian parliament or in other roles, but also as soldiers in the Arab Legion and uh, the Jordanian army. They have a historic loyalty to the Hashemite kings who now rule Jordan and have ruled Jordan since the Great Arab Revolt because they participated in the Great Arab Revolt under Sharif Hussein. And then afterwards, Sharif Hussein's two sons become monarchs in the Levant. So Faisal originally in Syria, then later in Iraq, and his other son Abdullah becomes the Emir of Transjordan. And in return for the, such political loyalty of the tribes, the Jordanian monarchs historically, starting with Abdullah I, uh, granted these tribes special political status. So they have certain autonomy in terms of legal systems and such things. And, you know, the most significant Jordanian monarch of probably the last century, uh, King Hussein, hugely respected by the East Bank tribes, because he's seen as more of a, he's seen as sort of a connecting piece to this original idea of the Great Arab Revolt um, through his grandfather, Abdullah I. Abdullah I made sure that Hussein was, spent a lot of time with the tribes, understood their culture, lived with them for a while. So these the tribes, um, especially as King Hussein got older, really had this sort of connection to the Jordanian monarchy. And because of that, they had a lot of trust and there was a lot of back and forth with King Hussein on these special political rights with the tribes that, you know, were later rolled back actually by Abdullah II, which we'll talk a little more about when we get into the coup attempt that was uh, in last March. These tribes have also historically been, as of recent, actually not historically, a source of opposition to the Jordanian monarchy. So there's issues between Abdullah II and some of the tribes, and some of the most vocal critics are the sheikhs, um, especially the tribes in northern Jordan, who criticize the power of the king, and especially the power of Queen Rania, and some of the decisions she's made as of recent, and domestic politics in Jordan. And the reason they can do that is because often these sheikhs also serve as senators in the Jordanian parliament. So they have a large audience they can appeal to. Um, they're embedded in the political system. So it's sort of the best way for the tribes to voice their frustration about uh, the Hashemite monarchy. 
unsurprisingly or like with this level of complexity both from the Palestinian side and from the Jordanian tribes as well like there has this has led to like a quite dysfunctional government in Jordan the power politics within the country are very intricate because of many domestic stakeholders which the monarchy has to balance and something which happens is that the as part of the the social contract which Matthew described like jobs within the government often go to the East Bankers in order to reward them for their loyalty to the regime. And the consequence of this has been that the government is spending 65% of its total budget on public sector salaries and pensions, which is an obscene amount of money. And another 17% is spent on debt, but we will get that later. But in effect, that basically means that only 20% of the government budget can be spent on like things such as healthcare and education creates quite a large amount of problems. In the electoral districts, because believe it or not, Jordan does have elections, they um, are also gerrymandered in such a way to reduce the power of uh, the West Bankers. The Palestinians often tend to live in the more urbanized areas in order to benefit the East Bankers who tend to live in the more rural areas. There have been several attempts to improve the situation of the government in Jordan. There's currently the fourth committee to improve like the political situation, but the three ones which have appeared in the past, all of their recommendations have been shelved or ignored. And so there's quite little faith among Jordanians and even among international watchers that anything is going to change because it is a difficult system to untangle simply because of the amount of vested interest in maintaining it as it is, even though it is a highly unsustainable system. And one of the reasons which we'll get onto now is the importance of national identity. And Guy, you mentioned that Palestinians from Gaza are not given the same rights as Palestinians from the West Bank because they don't, or because the Jordanian government doesn't want Jordan to become like a second home for Palestinians. Can you say a bit more about that? The Israeli right wing, especially the Likud, um, has had this idea that Jordan can function as an alternative to Palestine, as another a Palestinian state. And so they say, why do we need a Palestinian state in the West Bank? There's already a Palestinian state on the East Bank. Um, and Jordan's terrified of this. Obviously, if you when you had the initial waves of refugees, it was quite destabilizing. You had the war, you had Black September in 1971. Uh, largely because of this massive influx of refugees, a lot of people assumed that the Jordanian regime wasn't going to last. It created a lot of instability, <clears throat> a lot of violence. So it's not surprising that this idea of Jordan becoming a Palestinian state really terrifies the regime. Not to mention that the regime are not actually, they're not Palestinian. They're originally from a, what is now Saudi Arabia and the Hejaz. They don't want to have a Palestinian government. They want a Jordanian Hashemite supporting government which is, uh, as Matthew said, based off a lot of the tribes, but also with help from the Circassians. And who are the Circassians? Uh, the Circassians are a, also refugee people. They were kicked out of Circassia, which is next to Chechnya um, in the Caucasus. It used to be part of the Ottoman Empire, but it was invaded by Russia a couple of times. And one of those times, the Circassians were taken by the Ottoman Empire, taken in, given refuge, but strategically redeposited around the region. And one of the places they were deposited in was the abandoned, sparsely inhabited city of Amman. So it's the Circassians who really founded Amman. And when the Hashemites arrived, they made a 
alliance with the Circassians who had been sent in to tame the desert, to tame these the Bedouin of the area who had been harassing pilgrims on their way to Mecca. Um, and even today, I think most of the security services will be of Circassian origin. That's mega interesting. I didn't know that. And then, obviously, that's one side of the national identity question. The other side of the national identity question is how the tribes look at it. And a good way to see, know how the tribes look at it is how they look at the two most recent kings, um, Hussein and Abdullah II. So, Matthew, please go ahead. Yeah, so the events, I would say, from sort of the end of King Hussein's reign um, in the 90s to the coup that just uh, the attempted coup that just occurred in March 2021 almost play out like a Shakespeare play. So you have King Hussein, who's wildly popular. He has, like I said, he has this humble upbringing. If you actually read some of King Hussein's biographies, he talks about how, despite Abdullah, his grandfather, being king of Jordan, when he was um, a boy, he actually had a sister who died during the winter in Amman because his house didn't have heat and she got pneumonia and died. So he does have a really, really humble upbringing, actually, for probably the most important king in Jordan's history. So the tribes respect that because the tribes also, you know, a lot of these areas up until the mid to late 20th century were heavily impoverished and things like that. So they can identify with that struggle that sort of King Hussein had as a boy. But then, like I also said, Abdullah the first made sure that his grandson really understood the tribes that like, these are the people who sort of, we build our state upon. So these are the people who we have to understand. So, you know, King Hussein gets lots of respect, not early in, er, in the early part of his reign, there's some issues with the tribes, but as he moves on and um, becomes an older King, lots and lots of respect from the tribes consistently. And so, you know, King Hussein has a lot of sons. um, The oldest of which is, um, Abdullah, who becomes King Abdullah II, but his favorite son was actually Hamza, Prince Hamza. And when King Hussein was dying, he actually wanted Hamza to be king, but he recognized that Hamza is probably not old enough to be king uh, with King Hussein, you know, becoming king very young. Um, He understood the pressures of a young king and he didn't want Hamza to go through that because Hamza was only 18. So he at the last minute, sort of, he changes it and makes King Abdullah, well, that time Prince Abdullah, Crown Prince, um, he becomes Abdullah II of Jordan, with the promise from his oldest son that Hamza will stay the Crown Prince. And when, you know, Hamza is old enough to be king, Hamza will become king. That promise is kept by Abdullah when he becomes king in 1999. But in 2009, uh, he goes back on his promise and Abdullah II makes his own son, Hussein the crown prince, who if Hussein becomes king of Jordan, he'll become Hussein II. Hamza and Abdullah are two very polarizing figures in Jordanian politics, especially among the tribes. Hussein sort of put Hamza through the same education, if you want to call it that, that Abdullah I put him through. So he really understands the tribes and their traditions. He lived among them for a while. Even while he was crown prince, he would go see the, the tribesmen, celebrate Uh, tribal festivals with them, talk to them in their actual dialect, talk about, you know, tribal politics, things like water rights, um, agriculture, things that, you know, Hamza understands. Abdullah has always sort of been viewed as out of touch with the tribes. Abdullah was mostly educated outside of Jordan, either in the UK or in the US, and actually didn't speak 
modern standard Arabic until he became king. So I've, when I was in Jordan, my Arabic teachers would tell us that if you listen to some of King Abdullah II's first few speeches, he actually sounds like, you know, like what we as Westerners, when we try and learn Fusha, like what we sound like when we start, that it's very slow. And, you know, sometimes he has to stop and sort of catch himself. Case endings aren't always really right. But, you know, so, but that's a big deal because these tribesmen speak colloquial. King Abdullah, um, I, I'm sure he speaks colloquial now, but at the time he didn't even speak Fusha, whereas Hamza's always spoken the dialect. So there's a lot of relation there. And then the biggest sort of nail in the coffin, I would say, was when King Abdullah sort of took some of the special status away from the tribesmen um, politically. And sort of, like you said, Piotr, that, um, you know, some of these high ranking positions were given to bank as like, um, like kickbacks for political and economic development allies. I, I, I just wanted to jump in quickly on like the... Uh the Western aspect of, of King Abdullah II and the fact that, as you mentioned, he didn't speak very good Arabic. He didn't have a close connection with the tribes. And his perspective on how to develop the country was also very much in like the Western way of thinking because central to his sort of national policy, you could say, was to privatize a vast amount of the uh, business in, in Jordan for example, he would uh, privatize the phosphate industry, which is one of the major Jordanian moneymakers. He would privatize the banking sector, which is also an essential, a very important sector in, in the Jordanian economy. And the result of this, without going into too much detail, is that profits which are being made in Jordan are then, instead of being reinvested into Jordan, go, go for example, to Saudi Arabian banks. That has had a disastrous effect on the economy. Because since 2009, the per capita GDP has actually declined in Jordan. So on an individual level, people are poorer despite the economic or the economy growing just because the population has increased so fast. It has doubled in the last 20 years. As a result, a large number of people work in the untaxed informal economy and they, they also lack job security. They lack benefits and, of course, stability. And the fact that they don't get taxed is problematic for the government, which is in effect, becoming poorer and poorer. Because of the poor economic situation in Jordan, a large amount of Jordanians work in the Gulf. It's estimated that three quarters of a million work in the UAE, in Qatar, in Oman, and in Saudi Arabia. Um, and Saudi Arabia is the most important of these countries where about half a million Jordanians work. And this has obviously given Saudi Arabia a vast amount of influence over Jordan, but we'll get a bit more into that later, but more importantly, these remittances which these Jordanians send back home um, accounts for between 5 and 10% of Jordan's GDP. And considering how disastrous the COVID pandemic was for economies all over the world, it was especially disastrous for that of Jordan because these remittances were no longer being sent home because the people or the Jordanians who worked in the Gulf no longer had a job. They also lost one of their most important sectors, the tourist sector, which accounts for about 20% of GDP, because everybody wants to see Petra. And that again meant that the economic situation was extremely dire. This, however, is not a new development, because the economic situation in Jordan has, as I said, been poor for at least the last 10 years, and arguably for even longer. After the Iraq invasion by the US in 2003, trade with Iraq obviously created after the Syrian civil war started in 2000 and 
11, 12 trade with Syria was negatively affected. Um, and since then, they have been given regular IMF loans, but these have been incredibly unpopular because the IMF often encourages Jordan to increase taxes and cut spending. Considering how important spending is to keep both the East Bankers happy with jobs and the general population happy with subsidies for bread and fuel, this is a very, very politically sensitive topic. And the IMF knows that higher taxes are unsustainable, so they therefore recommend better tax collection, but that's much easier said than done when so many Jordanians don't work in the formal economy. Jordan also receives a vast amount of money from the US. It's the second biggest, actually, it's the third biggest recipient of US aid after Israel and Afghanistan. But I think after the recent withdrawal from Afghanistan, the Taliban probably does not receive that much aid anymore. And they also receive a large amount of money from the GCC countries. So that would be especially Kuwait, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Um, but we'll get into that a bit more later. But this, again, gives these countries a huge amount of influence over Jordan, which is quite politically unpopular within the country because nobody likes the feeling that their regime is a puppet regime for other countries. To link to what we're going to say next, the the knight, if you could say so, the horseman of the privatization was a man called Basim Abdallah, who was, if I recall correctly, the Jordanian minister of finance in the 2000s and after that was the chief of the royal court for a while and then became a special envoy from Saudi Arabia to Jordan. He has been arguably the face of the coup which we saw in 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 Jordan early last year in March in 2021 and people were very happy that he was finally prison because as I mentioned he was the face of the privatization as well which was incredibly unpopular because it's increased inequality. But the coup is, in the end, why this episode is relevant nowadays. So, Matthew, would you like to explain about the coup and, like, why it happened? Or we think it happens and who was involved? <laughs> yeah, we're not sure. Like, um, we're not sure really what happened yet. But so far, what we know, um, at this point, almost a year out. So, yeah, supposedly this was a, a coup, like you said, um, backed by some of the tribesmen to... Uh, replaced King Abdullah II with Prince Hamza. And, you know, it was foiled. It was right around, actually, I remember because I was at home, um, which would be odd during a, an academic year, but it was right around Easter, if I remember. So Hamza was, at, after that, for a brief time, he was put under house arrest because the government claimed that he sought to promote sedition um, with the goal of destabilizing Jordan's uh, national security. Um, and then later, all of these ties sort of came out with this business associate from Saudi Arabia, and they announced that the government, the Jordanian government announced that they believed the plot um, had foreign backing and they linked Hamza to these Saudi business associates and some business associates in Israel. That obviously hasn't been proven um, yet, but it's it's speculation as, you know, victims of coups like to do when they're foiled. Uh, and then after that, though, what we see across the country, which right after the coup happened, there was a lot of reporting, both in The New York Times, Washington Post. Financial Times on CNN. So it was a lot of attention. But then sort of the fallout after the initial um, foiling of the coup really hasn't got a lot of attention. So, so yeah, someone who has reported a lot on um, what has still been happening in Jordan is Nabi Bolas with the LA Times. And he reported that uh, a series of about 18 arrests in tribal communities alone um, occurred after the plot was discovered. 
And these would occur in very sort of historically autocratic ways. So things we often see coming out of like places, say like Russia or Saudi Arabia, where black SUVs would roll up and they would raid houses, come in, arrest people, and then take off, um, which is something that since I would say Black September and the shutdown of the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan, really the, the general population has not seen um, that sort of repression in Jordan. So that was shocking. And um, all the trials for everybody who's arrested have been transferred over to a public prosecutor, um, which gives the tribes people hope that there will be some fair, some semblance of fair justice, except which this is also a big issue, Prince Hamza's. Prince, they've announced that Prince Hamza will be dealt with by order of the king um, in the framework of the royal family. So this very vague sort of legal system that the royal family operates in. And that's really, that angered a lot of the tribes people. And the Hashemite family, just a last little point, which usually is able to keep its sort of feuds um, within the palace. You know, people don't see them in public. A lot of this actually did play out on Twitter. Queen Noor, who is um, Prince Hamza's mother, tweeted saying that if there's an investigation, you know, Hamza will be exonerated. There's no wrongdoing. But then Princess Furial, Furial who is uh, the sister of the late King Hussein, responded to Noor's tweet. And she said, this is, quote, seemingly blind ambition of Queen Noor and her sons and, um, that is delusional, futile, and unmerited. And at the end, she, you know, in a very sort of Arab, older, female relative way, told all of the boys, she said, grow up, boys, um, you know. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, also yeah. it's important to note, note that Queen Noor is the wife of the late King Hussein, right? Yeah, she, well, she's the last wife of King Hussein. So King Hussein did have three wives. Abdullah and Hamza are only half-brothers. Ham, uh, Abdullah is the son of Queen Muna, and Hamza's the son of Queen Noor. So Queen Noor was um, considered to be the favorite wife of King Hussein, and so therefore Hamza is the favorite son of King Hussein. So, and, and do you by any chance also know anything about like the relative stature of the queens within Jordan like is Queen Noor for example a very popular queen Queen yes Queen Noor um, I'm not really sure about Queen Muna from what I read in some in like one I think biography Queen Queen Muna was decently popular but Queen Noor was also very popular amongst the Jordanians um, and I think that was mostly associated with by the time Hussein married her Hussein was also very popular in Jordan at that time but generally talking about queens Queen Rania is actually very unpopular in Jordan. And whether, you know, that could be for a lot of reasons, like you said, with Westernization, she's also a very big proponent of Westernization. She herself is actually, this plays into what Guy was talking about, is not an East Banker. She's um, ethnically a West Banker. So she has Palestinian heritage. And now she's the Queen of Jordan, which, you know, for people, for East Bankers who don't want to see Jordan become the second home for the Palestinians, this is sort of something that they don't want to see that there's a they have a queen who you know can trace her descends descent back to the west bank yeah and, and something you mentioned as well about the court case is that because it's in a public court that there is some hope the the court case of basim adala and sharif hasan bin zayed have both been in military courts which have been highly non-transparent and basim adala's lawyer claimed that um, adala has been tortured in order to force him into confession because I also think, like, you know, we have been calling it a coup um, 
throughout the episode and in the media it's been called a coup as well but so far there has been extremely little evidence of the coup basically because the Jordanian intelligence services claim that like either someone from Israel was involved there have been a bit of has been a bit of speculation that Saudi Arabia was involved because of Basma Dallas very close relationship to uh, Mohammed bin Salman and his historical relationship to Saudi Arabia he was, he's also a citizen of that country something which I guess we can come into now is like the role or the the role Saudi Arabian money has played in in Jordan recently but it's it does feel like like listening to what you're saying about Hamza's popularity and Abdullah II's relative unpopularity that it's also like a very effective way for him to get rid of a political opponent Oh, that's that's also something I read when researching this is that it's it's not an uncommon idea that you know it's it's more political than anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this I think very possibly has, like you said, the the ability to get rid of a very popular political opponent to King Abdullah, and is sort of something that you know a trend we've seen in the region before, like with. Erdogan and the coup that occurred in Turkey that many believe was actually orchestrated by government forces to sort of help Erdogan consolidate power. So it's not unheard of, you know, in the world to stage fake coups by, I, I, I restrain myself to call Abdullah an autocrat. I don't think he's a traditional autocrat, but to someone who is sort of like a monarch or a centralized executive. Exactly. But as I mentioned earlier, like there, like Saudi Arabian money and Emirati money plays a very large role in, in Jordan. In 2011, for example, the GCC gave a $5 billion package, aid package to, to Jordan. Could you go a bit into that, Guy? Yeah, so uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf countries use their oil wealth regionally to make sure that regional threats, as the Arab Spring in 2011, um, that kind of protest movement don't spread across their borders and threaten their regimes. So in 2011, you had one of the clearest cases of the Saudi regime using its wealth in that way. Um, and it's continued to support Jordan and other states in this way. But I think what could have contributed to a bit of con- confusion or tension or aggravation was the blockade of Qatar in 2017 and onwards, where the Saudis obviously expected Jordan to take their side because of all the support they'd given them. But Jordan, rather than totally boycotting Qatar, instead just downgraded the diplomatic status. The same kind of thing happened with Turkey and Qatar. Uh, Saudi Arabia asked Turkey to cut ties and Turkey obviously said, no way, they're our friends. So I, I think that does give a bit of, not proof, but if uh, we were going to say, if that there was foreign involvement and that it was Saudi, you might look to that tension as a reason for it. Remember what happened with Saad Hariri when that's the previous leader of Lebanon. Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudis felt that he wasn't being on their side enough considering how much support he was getting from the Saudi government. And so they invited him to, to Saudi Arabia and roughed him up a little bit. Um, so perhaps it could be that same kind of thing. The Saudi government just saying, we support you, stay in line. But there's, there's really no evidence for that. That's entirely speculation. And also in 2021, Qatar started an initiative to invest $500 million in Jordan and provide more jobs in Qatar. So it doesn't seem like if that was the aim, it doesn't seem like it's worked, which also kind of makes it seem like that isn't what happened. And there's a lot of other stuff going on that 
could point more to an internal uh if if it was a coup to an to internal um upset namely jordan and the us's controversial security agreement um which many people said gave up jordanian sovereignty in that the us can now carry weapons on its territory transport supplies and ships and aircraft without applying for a visa so there was a lot of lots of things going on behind the scenes and also there's a palestinian dynamic i suppose you could say in the jordanian control of haram sharif um that's the the temple mount in jerusalem haram sharif is one of the three holiest muslim shrines uh, along with mecca and medina jordan is in control of well nominally in control of haram sharif in jerusalem but recently israelis like ehud olmert um and especially in the more recent Jared Kushner and Donald Trump plan the deal of the century to increase the Middle East um, would have seen control of Haram al-Sharif go from the Jordanian king to the Saudis or to other actors. That would be great for the Saudis. The Saudis would love that. Um, They'd then have control of three of the religious shrines, the most important religious shrines in Islam, which would give them a lot more credibility for their claims to represent Islam and be the leaders of the Islamic world. So that would be greatly important for them and also a nightmare for um, the Jordanians. I think, so King Abdullah was naturally very much against the Kushner um, MBS, the American stroke Saudi deal, which is could have annoyed, to say the least, Mohammed bin Salman and Trump and the Americans, which gives more credence to the idea that it could have been foreign interference to some extent or other forces working in that vein and there's one quote from john jenkins who was a former uk consul general to east jerusalem an ex-ambassador to riyadh who said that moving of uh, the control of haram sharif from jordan to saudi would have would radically crush the hashemite monarchy and be like throwing a grenade into a crowded room so naturally, the, you can see that, that the deal of the century wasn't a great deal for Jordan. And he was, a, specifically King Abdullah, was a massive uh, obstacle to it, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I, I just want to uh, dive a bit more into a few of the things you said, because you mentioned or you discussed the uh, financial support from the GCC in 2011 and then from Qatar in 2021. In 2018, the financial support from the Gulf ceased and massive protests broke out in in Jordan when the government planned to increase taxes to make up for the shortfall. And the Jordanians felt this was a quite a clear punishment by especially the Saudis on them for the lack of Jordanian support in the blockade of Qatar, which you discussed, Guy. And also, as you also mentioned, for not giving Saudi Arabia custodianship over Jerusalem because of the associated political and religious and cultural benefits this would have for um, for Saudi Arabia. And the UAE and Saudi Arabia eventually did give Jordan $2 billion, but it is very likely that this uh, money came with a large number of strings attached, for example, to bring Jordan closer into Saudi, the Saudi or Emirati orbit, or to put pressure on them to support the deal of the centuries, obviously, is only the deal of the century for the Israelis and for the Saudis. Everybody else gets a turd sandwich. 
what is noticeable in general about what we've discussed so far is the fact that Jordan has become a, you know, it's it's only barely a player in Middle Eastern politics at the moment. It's very much a country that is being almost played with either by the Israelis or by the um, Emiratis or by the Saudis because of its, you know, relative lack of economic independence and even how sensitive it is to the politics of the countries around it. It, it doesn't have any major domestic industry. It's It's completely reliant on support from the European Union, from the US and from the Gulf. And the way they're trying to counteract that drop in legitimacy is, for example, to play a mediating role in uh, in Syria. So King Abdullah II has spoken with Assad. A person high up in the Jordanian National Security Establishment has met with his counterpart in, in Syria. And also there's now Egyptian gas and Jordanian electricity being supplied to Lebanon through Syria. So there's hope or there's intentions within Jordan to, you know, slowly but surely, or at least attempt to increase their, increase their role in the region in order to not be entirely subsumed in the, you know, the, I don't want to say great power, but regional power politics between Israel and, and Saudi Arabia and even Iran because of, you know, the anti-Iran axis, which is developing between the Gulf and Israel. And there's also hope, for example, that Israeli-Jordanian relations will improve because King Abdullah famously had extremely poor relations with Benjamin Netanyahu, who has been leading Israel for the last decade. And, you know, I don't think that's surprising because Netanyahu is not a man who it's easy to have good relationship, uh, good relations with. Yeah, so this all, like you were saying, plays into what I think is the largest obstacle for Jordan regionally and and this has been throughout its entire history is that it's been accused of being sort of dependent on foreign powers you know when Nasser came to power the greatest um, assailment that he laid on King Hussein was that he's just a puppet state of the United Kingdom and the U.S. so I feel like Jordan throughout its entire history has been trying to shake off this um, idea that it's sort of just the safe haven for the U for foreign powers to step into the Middle East, and it's not you know the the Western Arab power that um, a lot of other states see it as. So especially, um, I think King Abdullah, like you said, with liberalization, but also increased regional engagement and trying to reduce dependence on Western aid and sort of turning more to Saudi Arabia and the UAE and the GCC, which you know. You can gauge whether that's a politically wise move or not has been all in attempt to sort of try and break that standard that Jordan has had with its regional allies. Can I, can I make a counter argument? Because like for my bachelor thesis and even early on when I hadn't found a topic for my master's thesis yet, I, I thought I wanted to write a thesis which made the argument that Jordan might be the most important country in the Middle East. It's not because of its economic power, because it doesn't have any, nor its military power, because that's also very limited. But it is a country which is very much a sponge for all of the problems in the Middle East. Like when Iraq basically collapsed under American sanctions in the 90s, Iraqi refugees went to Jordan. When Syria devolved into the civil war, there's now 1.3 million Syrian refugees in Jordan. It, and they are all in Jordan, so that and they don't go to Israel, they don't go to Saudi Arabia, they don't get to Kuwait. Like Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey are absorbing the vast majority of, of refugees in, in their region. And because it's a very stable country with 
despite everything we've said, a, you know, a stable political leader, at least, and a fairly stable political system. It's also a country which Israel is probably, out of all of them, the most comfortable to have as its neighbor. It wouldn't want a, as big a border with Israel, which is much more belligerent, and especially in Syria, with which it's still officially at war. So I do think, you know, while, while it is very much a pawn in the region, it is a pawn which I think each country is desperate to maintain the existence of because if Jordan would collapse like the the results I feel at least in my analysis and my knowledge of the region would be fairly cataclysmic like it would immediately be an existential threat to Israel it would be a massive problem for Syria because suddenly the northern border is potentially very porous when it comes to refugees even though there is quite a big desert and overall like you know the problems which Jordan now insulates most of the Middle East from would suddenly become even more regional than they already are. Yeah, I would say that's absolutely um, a fair argument. <laughs> um, and, you know, that made me think more. I heard um, a professor once say that, you know, the greatest security advantage that the United States has ever had is that it has its two land borders are peaceful and have been historically. So, you know, perhaps the same is true for Jordan in the 21st century, you know, with the exception of Syria maybe perhaps that plays into it, that it has a peaceful border with Saudi Arabia, has a peaceful border with Israel. Well, Avi Shalim says that Jordan is Jordan and Israel are the best of enemies. I don't want to go too into it, but I think there's a lot of, um, not outward, but there's a lot of cooperation under the covers, not least because, partly because of their shared history. They both had a shared enemy in Palestinian nationalism, but also because Jordan is a very water-scarce country water and resource scarce in general, and Israel is less so. I think Jordan, even though, of course, in 2021, when you had the outbreak of violence, they publicly condemned Israel. There weren't actually actions to back up those words because Jordan is quite dependent on Israel for its water and other energy needs. And also, I think there's a lot of security cooperation. As we said before, it's uh, it's the aid that it receives from the U.S., make sure that it aligns itself with Israel as well, if not on a rhetoric public level. You know, I, I once, a few years ago, I spoke with the Israeli ambassador to the Netherlands and I asked him a similar question and he gave a very short answer and that's why I still remember it. And his answer was that Jordanian and Israeli interests are very closely aligned. And that's all he said, even though I asked him quite a long question. But he clearly didn't want to go into it too much, but it does seem to be the case that, you know, despite a vast amount of potentially quite hostile rhetoric across the border, both countries realize they do need each other because had Jordan and Lebanon, for example, swapped places, like the situation in Israel would have been quite difficult to handle, to say the least. I heard something cool about plans for a Haifa railway port, a, you know, port that would connect to a railway which would become part of Israel making friends with the UAE and Saudi Arabia. So obviously, if it wanted to become connected regionally, uh, economically that way, then a railway would necessarily have to go through a man through Jordan. So it would necessarily need uh, Jordan's cooperation to become integrated in the regional economic market, which could mean that Jordan remains somewhat of a, a geopolitical power. I thought, think about what Avi Shalem says about them being the best of enemies. Um, I remember when I was in Jordan in, uh, this would have been in, this incident occurred in November of 2019. I had just returned from Palestine on uh, the West, the Palestinian West Bank, back to Oman. And I was reading the 
English newspaper, the Jordan Times. And it was literally like two days later, King Abdullah did not renew Israel's lease on two regions. I may, I, I'm in level one Arabic, so let me go ahead and butcher the names of the places. Uh, Bakura and El Khamir, which were places that uh, Israel was sort of leasing from the Jordanian government. And then when the lease was due, Israel was fully expecting Jordan to renew them and they did not. So yeah, there are, um, you know, shots across the bow, but I think guy, what you said is, is sound that they, they sort of need each other, Israel for security purposes, Jordan for, you know, resource purposes from Israel. So, but Jordan also does things to sort of retain its legitimacy as, you know, part of the Arab world and support for the Palestinians. I, I think then Jordan is in a quite interesting situation. And this might be how we end the podcast where it is probably one of the very few countries in the world where almost all the stakeholders within it and outside of it want the situation in Jordan to be as good as possible. You know, you don't see that, for example, with Yemen or with Syria, because then there's too many vested interests in, which are perfectly comfortable ripping the country apart. But it does seem that the Gulf Arabs, the Americans, the Europeans, the Israelis are all very invested in ensuring that the situation in Jordan, like the political problems we've discussed, the economic problems we've discussed, and the tensions with the country's national identity, that, that all of them get resolved in a positive way, simply because the the alternative would be a disaster. Thank you for listening to this episode of Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. Almanac is a student-run initiative at the Middle East Centre in the University of Oxford. The opinions expressed in the podcast do not in any way represent the official opinions of the University or of the Middle East Centre.